I'm letting you into a secret. I have a very exciting free mini course coming for you. Reset your health in 30 days, which will enable you to unlock the power to reduce stress, improve your physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and take charge of your health. Sign up now via my website, www.sarahannmacklin.com. I'm very excited about kicking off this new year with this episode because in over a hundred episodes that we've done, this theme and this topic is always at the center point of all the conversations. They all link back to this one factor, which is stress. Because stress is such a predetermining factor for so many chronic health conditions, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And that's why I'm so excited that we're kicking off January with a topic on stress because I think it's not spoken about enough as it should be. Because stress is a common problem and it affects people of all ages and backgrounds. It can really take a toll on our physical and mental health. So in this episode, I'm thrilled to bring back a guest who appeared on one of our very first episodes, Dr. Mitu Steroni. She was an eye surgeon and a brain researcher, and now she's turned author. She's here to share her insights on how the brain responds to uncertainty and performs under pressure. And she'll be sharing tips and strategies for managing stress and improving our overall health. So if you go to someone who thrives on running down a black ski run, black ski slope, or if you go to someone who likes making fine carvings, fine etchings, you cannot tell either of these people that what they're doing is stressful because it's not stressful to them. We'll also be discussing the different set points of stress tolerance and the stress gap between men and women, as well as the potential ways that we could maybe biohack our way out of stress. So if you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed out at the start of this new year, this episode is for you. Join me and learn from the expert about the science of stress and how to manage it for a happier and healthier life in 2023. Me too. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well and welcome to my home. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. So we spoke to each other actually in 2020, didn't we? When you came on the podcast, I'm trying to think that must have been season two or season three because we were talking about stress back then and very relevant in in the COVID times. And you'd written a book called The Stress Proof in 2017. And now I'm very lucky to have you here. You've flown over from Luxembourg and you're in London for a few days. So I am so pleased that we're doing this in person. And also you're writing your second book on hyper-efficiency as well all related to stress. Now, this episode is coming out in January, in the new year, and I think so many people in January find many things stressful, especially post-Christmas, which on the outside always looks quite happy and jolly, but actually I think it's a really stressful period. Um, So I cannot wait to talk to you all things stress today. Thank you, thank you. Yes, it's been a long time, two years since we last spoke about it and we went through two years of actually unimaginable stress in in many quarters Um, and it's wonderful that we're at this point in time and uh, but stress continues to be a topic um, so relevant. So yes, very happy to talk about it. I just think it's one of those things that we all relate to. I don't think any of us can say we don't relate to stress in some shape or form. Um, And I would definitely strongly recommend if anyone hasn't listened to our episode, you will have to troll back through a few seasons. But it's really, really important because you really dive into the physiology of stress. And we talk a lot about that aspect, which we'll touch upon briefly today. But I want to talk about so many other things that you've embarked on your research since then. So just to give people who maybe haven't listened to that episode or feel a bit misinformed around stress, can you give me the definition of stress? Like, What is stress? So very simply and very practically, stress is a, is the stress reaction is a bridge that your brain creates to temporarily bridge a gap between where you are and where your brain thinks you need to be. So in any situation that threatens to overwhelm you in some way, 
your brain realizes that you need a little bit of extra help, extra power. And so it mobilizes resources, almost like a default setting. So resources that make your reaction, your situation much easier to defend, much easier to survive, pretty much in any situation. And that's the button of stress that it pushes. When that situation is over, or when your physiology has met that need, and when that situation has maybe changed, that bridge is no longer required, and the stress reaction is deactivated. And so following this is a question that I want to ask, and I always start the podcast with, is what have you changed your mind about in the last 10 years? And I wonder if this is a relation to stress. This is an important question because writing my book um, brought so many papers, so many um, academic papers to my attention that I would never have actually sought out and would not have come across and back then would not have believed. Um, So, you know, 10 years... It feels like a very long time now, especially mm. given the last two years. But 10 years ago, when I was writing my book, um, I was coming across, for instance, the research on the microbiome and on gut bacteria and the influence that gut bacteria have on brain function, cognitive function, in addition to general health. And back then, when I, especially when I first started re- writing it, um, I was, I found some of the data quite difficult to believe because obviously when there's one medical paper, you don't assume that that's going to change the paradigm. But that was when the floodgates opened and then I found there is this huge other kind of world of research to do with this second type of zoo that lives within us, which has such huge influence. So that led to me deciding to eat in a different way, to look at uh, my diet in general, to kind of see the connection between nutrition and the brain um, that I was sort of actually also doing before that because it has been part of my, my, my academic work prior to that. But it definitely made me more conscious of how I lived and worked. And of course, other things, for instance, um, I didn't know um, by... Well, I, I, I had an inkling, but I didn't really know just how much a stress response is connected to inflammation, for instance. So I didn't know that when you become emotionally triggered by something, if you immediately were to have a blood test, you would find raised markers of inflammation at that moment. And that came as a huge revelation to me, even though I remember barely come across, coming across one of the first papers on this by someone called Tracy, uh, Tracy et al., I think it was 1999 or 98. But I didn't kind of think twice. But then by the time I wrote my book, there were quite a few papers showing this connection. And I thought, really, every time we become emotionally reactive, we actually raise markers of inflammation, which must have enormous um, effects on our general physiology, health, and in the long term. That's so interesting because as you're talking about that, I'm just thinking of autoimmune conditions and epigenetics at the same time. And for anyone who's not sure what that is, there was a thing that we've all known about called junk genes. And now we know that they have the opportunity to switch themselves on and, on and off. And there is a lot of discussion now around, is this because of the rise in autoimmune conditions and maybe there is a link to stress? And as I'm hearing this, it feels like that actually could be a massive cause of the increase of autoimmune conditions. Is that something that you believe? Before I wrote my book, when I was working in London as a clinical research fellow, I was seeing, seeing many patients with autoimmune diseases affecting the nervous system. So multiple sclerosis and cousins of that disease, such as NMO. And, you know, at the time, um, we went by the rules uh, that if something isn't quantifiable or cannot be qualified in a non-abstract way, in a sort of tangible way, we can't really put it down as a contributory factor to any illness or any disease. But I used, and you can speak to anyone, any you know, clinician looking at patients with autoimmune diseases, um, especially things like MS, you will find patients coming in and doing everything right, but then saying, um, you know, I had a relapse. And then 
the patient wants to tell you that actually they can connect that relapse to some kind of emotionally triggering event, some kind of traumatic event, or just some kind of perturbation in their, in their normal lives. So they will say to you, you know, I really went through a period of stress. Could that be something to do with it? And of course, at the time, um, there was no data on this. And so you can't say, yes, stress is causing relapses of, you know, certain immune diseases, autoimmune diseases. But if you fast forward now, now that we can quantify many things, we are having more and more research papers emerge that show a direct link between stress and autoimmune conditions. And so it is plausible um, that perhaps not on its own, you need all the other factors there, but it's plausible that if someone is more prone to autoimmune conditions, then living a life of chronic stress could play a role in exacerbating that or triggering that. Mm. And you talk about chronic stress there, and I think many people listening to this podcast, many of my listeners probably have quite stressful jobs, you know, probably quite high achieving people. Um, and I do think that many of us aren't aware, or even myself, I talk about myself personally, aren't aware of how stressed we were. And when you came in here, I talked to you about my day this week. Um, and I told you that actually, I knew I was really stressed, but I kind of couldn't break that stress response. And then yesterday, all of my glands swelled up. Um, and I felt really low in energy. It's one of those things where I think sometimes we can accept that's actually just how we're feeling without actually realizing the detrimental effects or how can we break that stress cycle. What advice do you have for, because I'm hearing this and many people probably are hearing this at the same time, what can we do to actually initiate us to react to that, to actually take action on this isn't how I should be living because there is going to be long-term health effects? So I went through a period of, of my life where I was very, very similar. Um, I think that the, with hindsight, I think th the important thing is to remember that, first of all, stress has been, the acute stress response has been part of our physiology um, during evolution, during the course of our evolution. So it's absolutely essential and it's integral to who we are. But one difference is that we, our physiology has evolved in an environment where the stress response happens and then you recover from it, okay? And what has changed is because the triggers of stress have changed, we are getting the stress more frequently. Um, when we're experiencing it, if we haven't recovered from the last bout, experiencing it again makes a reaction more intense and so we never really truly recover and the only opportunity we have of remembering what we are like when we are not stressed is when we go through a period of drastic detachment and so in answer to your question one way of kind of measuring your own your own state and whether or not you're missing something is First of all, there's something very simple and basic, such as are you waking up refreshed every morning and so on. Um, but when you move your, remove yourself from that environment, from the environment you usually are in, perhaps by going on holiday, perhaps by taking a long holiday at home, um, and just being really in tune with how you're feeling, what is your sleep like, um, what's your, what are your energy levels like, what's your mental clarity like, and then kind of remembering that and recognizing that and then comparing that to how you become when you re-enter your life mm. that is very stressful so remembering and recognizing what you are like when the stress triggers are gone acts as a very good reminder to how you are mm. how you should be it's a lot of self-awareness in there a lot of self-awareness and I think that one of the problems that we have is we we tend to keep going and because the stress triggers right now, we, we now recognize them to be so diverse, so varied, and possibly even so subtle, that we don't recognize that they're persistently there. Mm. So for instance, you know, something as simple, and this is, comes back to your earlier questions, well, what have I learned? Something as simple as your circadian rhythm. Um, everyone is talking about it now, but it really is such an important factor. Um, 
there is now data that certain mental illnesses such as depression, bipolar disorder, as well as physiological, uh, sorry, illnesses affecting the rest of the body, such as insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and possibly others, have within it a disordered circadian rhythm as a very, very key player. So, but if you are enjoying your job, enjoying your life, and you go to sleep late at night, you're watching Netflix or whatever, and you're, or you're walk, waking up at erratic hours every day, over time, you might not notice it, but that is in itself alone is acting as a stress trigger. Mm. So there are lots of subtle ways in which we're living that, that these ways are contributing without our in, being aware of them. I really want to come onto our environment and that's definitely the next sector of this. But before I do, you mentioned there and I, and I feel like we might have touched upon this in the podcast, but you said obviously you went through your own relationship with stress. Would you be happy to talk to us about that? And is that the reason why you wanted to write the book Stress Proof? And is that why maybe your passion in this area has grown because you found it very releasable? Without a doubt, I... Um when I was, I mean, I'm not alone in this, but any, mm. any junior doctor working at the time that I worked would have gone through enormous amounts of stress, sleep deprivation, um, the emotional trauma of, of looking after people who are in danger, sometimes unsuccessfully, and so on. All of that really plays onto the mind. And we keep going, we kept going, but certainly some people are better able to cope with that than others. And I noticed that I was one of the unlucky few who are less able to cope with it. And in that situation, I realized that um, coming forward, so I was very interested in it, in in the topic, as you say, and I was looking up uh, any research relating to it. But also, you know, on the other side, while I was stressed, I noticed my patients were stressed and they were coming to me and asking whether stress was playing a role in what they were doing. And what was what they were experiencing, and whether they could have done something differently. So I think all of those things kind of blend into everything. Mm. And and stress was like this unknown kind of um, colorless cloud in the room that was always there, but was not tangible enough to measure. So that would have that would have led to it. Um, and I certainly think that had I known the tools that could have made my life easier, I my life would have felt much easier. But you mentioned something there about your personality not being the best to cope with stress. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating because something about this podcast, we have two things. There's a reductionist view comes up a lot. Stress is, I say two things, three things. Stress seems to be an underlying factor on whatever we speak about and whatever sector we're talking about in this podcast, stress is a big theme. And the third thing is that we're all very individual. So we all have our own blueprint and actually we shouldn't be following one path, one pattern. It's very multifaceted. Now, something that people might be shocked or surprised to hear is that we all have different personalities that can deal with stress I was quite fascinated I think when you told me this last week um, because I think sometimes you know someone's suffering with anxiety and someone else isn't maybe they're handling those situations different and it could be the same with stress so can you explain how our personalities can actually determine if we're better or worse at coping and dealing with stress and how do we even know that so this is such an important point um Let's dial back and instead of using the word stress, let's replace it with life, okay? Now, if you were to take any individual and you were to grant them a wish and say they could be or do anything they wanted to do, you and I and anyone else would be shocked by some of the responses we would probably hear. And for instance, you know, if I look at the range of people I know, I know people with, who are doing drastically different things and yet both of these people are experiencing the same level of vitality, joy and mental comfort from doing what they are doing. So to go into that uh, a little more clearly, um, so one of the people whose work you know I love is um, the late uh, Csikszentmihalyi who, who passed away uh, he wrote a book on flow. Um, the, the state of 
it's the, the flow state is the way he describes it. He described it in a book, so I can't summarize it in a line, but it's essentially um, being in a state where what you're doing puts your mind in a very specific state where you are deriving a really deep level of joy from what you're doing and what you're doing feels effortless so you can feel like you can do it forever that's very broadly what he described now if you take people working different jobs and doing things that they like to do you will find that people achieve this state doing wildly different things so for instance i have a friend who is an artist who etches very very thin lines as part of his work. He doesn't do it because he's asked to. He does it because doing that gives him joy. I have another friend who only feels certainty and joy when he's really, really challenged. So he feels joy and he feels happy and calm when he is going down a black run ski slope or even going off piste. Um, if you ask him to etch these lines on a piece of metal, etch a hundred of these lines, he would he would be distraught. <laughs> Similarly, if you take this friend one and you put him in the second situation, he would be distraught. So we all have a different requirement for environmental cues to put us in a state where we feel good. The state at which we feel good is kind of the same, but what we require to get there is very different, and it depends on our personality. So moving on from that, extending that analogy, some people feel incredibly stressed in so-called high-stress environments, okay, whereas other people thrive. Um, you know, if you go on to, for instance, the trading floor of a bank. This is literally what came into my head. You will find that in general, in general, um, traders who are happy and successful in their jobs have a completely different personality and requirement and threshold for having a stress response from, say, the mathematicians, the financial quants who do the equations. Their level of work is the same. The joy they derive is the same but they need a completely different environment. And this brings on to the idea, as on to the idea of solutions. So if you go to someone who thrives on running down a black ski run, black ski slope, or if you go to someone who likes making fine carvings, fine etchings, you cannot tell either of these people that what they're doing is stressful because it's not stressful to them. So one of the key, you know, key things that we have to do to solve the, the problem of stress is figuring out what is your makeup, what, what gives you joy and what is most triggering for you. So do you thrive in an environment that is incredibly challenging, full of uncertainty? What is your uncertainty threshold? Once you have that, you can recognize it. If you tell someone who thrives in a high-pressure environment that they have to go to a room and meditate for 20 minutes because no matter what, they are definitely under stress, that meditation could actually act as a stress trigger for them and vice versa. And, you know, this is important because the environment we're living on today is very different from the environment we evolved in. But this diversity of personality and kind of physiological reactivity is essential because no matter how our environment changes, some of us will always be a perfect fit mm. and will survive it. Do you know, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking back to COVID and some people absolutely loved working from home and it's been transformational for their, for their lives and also probably for their stress levels. Others have hated it. And others want to be in an office. They want to be surrounded by people. They want to be leaving the house in the morning. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way of even if somebody's listening to this saying, well, I don't really know what I get joy from. And I think that may be one thought that when people are listening to this, it's maybe even thinking back to COVID and thinking, how did you feel in that moment? Um, were you somebody who loved being at home or did you need to be out in the office and, and thriving and enjoy that community element? Um, 
I do think it's a really interesting way to actually look and think maybe I'm not coping with my stress levels because maybe I'm not in the right environment. This is really, how really essential. How can someone change that? Because if someone is in an environment of work, I'm just thinking for people who might be relating to this, they could then feel quite worried about what's the, the correct change to then make. So what advice would you give to those types of people that are listening? So what I would say is that um, we know that there are hundreds of adjustments you can make to your lives using very simple tools. And one of these, one of the ways of implementing this is knowing that no matter what environment you're on, you have some power of over curating it. So um, whether you're working in a, in a high-stress office environment, whether you're working at home and you're bored, you have ultimate power over deciding what triggers you can include or eliminate from your immediate environment. And that goes a long way in the immediate terms. So, you know, let's just think, let's just, you know, if you, for instance, are someone who's very emotionally reactive um, and your your emotional triggers for stress are probably, the threshold for those triggers is probably lower than, say, the next person. And you happen to find yourself in a job where you have no choice, but you are in that environment. So for you, your emphasis can be on ways to bolster your emotional resilience and to bolster ways in which you recover from emotional stress, emotional triggers at the expense of everything else. And you could pay special attention to those things, okay? Um, for someone else, if your trigger is simply overwork and um, you're not really emotionally triggered, but you're just triggered by the sheer load of things and you need, you need space and time, you need to detach from work, then, you know, getting really good at psychological detachment um, or mental detachment when you get home without so much focusing on the emotional side of things. So what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is it's really important to know yourself and to understand what lies in your environment that is contributing the most to any negative effects you're having of being in that. And then you can curate your environment and your behavior outside of that environment to target those specific things. And those specific things will be very different. So for instance, you know, if you are someone who's very high pressured and you find yourself in a really mundane job, okay, looking through spreadsheets or whatever, then as soon as you're home from work, you need to undo that by doing something really intense, high-powered, that snatches at your attention and puts you in that level where you feel levels of vitality and joy. Um, go on, you know, do intense challenges in the weekends and so on. Whereas if you're someone in a very uh, high-powered environment who doesn't thrive there and you're constantly thinking and working it out and solving problems then when you come home, you do the exact opposite. In your spare time, you do the exact opposite. So recognising yourself, I definitely say, is the first step. Such a big one, the self-awareness. I've been talking a lot about this this week, actually, and I think sometimes we, um, yeah, can have, we can have our blinkers on, can't we, in our lives, and actually we can look about helping others, and it's less about reflection on ourselves so it's a massive one especially when it comes to stress now something I really want to talk to you about is you mentioned to me about the mismatch stress trigger could you explain what that is to any of our listeners because this is a new term for me evolutionary we have evolved in an environment that's very different to how we are now and beyond our control the environment will keep changing we keep creating the tools and the tools keep creating us in a way, as Marshall McLuhan said. Um, and this mismatch between what we are used to doing and how we've always been and this environment that we are creating is for some people becoming larger and larger. So, you know, right now we know, for instance, that the levels of information technology and transfer and 
just information presence around us is at unprecedented levels. And we know that our minds have a certain limited bandwidth for processing information. So one of the new things in our environment now is that we have an added trigger that's pushing on this load, on this cognitive load, which is an abundance of salient information. This has not been the case in our particular history pretty much ever. We have never had this level of um, mental load, of, of information processing requirement. Some of us are dealing very well with it, but others are not. And it's in this sort of situation, it's important to realise what your own levels are and whether this mismatch between your environment and yourself is giving rise and acting as a stress trigger in a way that you might not immediately be aware of. Absolutely. I just think about my focus levels as you're talking about that. I definitely am somebody who, if I don't put my phone on focus mode, I am continuously distracted. And it is that information overload. But also something along those lines is the dopamine effect that you get when you're engaging in technology. So it can be really hard to put those barriers and boundaries in, can't it, during those moments of being aware that your, your environment may not be supporting your stress levels. But then we also kind of have a pull effect, which is the dopamine and the reward value, which we also get from that. So what would you advise people to do in, in that instance? We have had a progressive transfer of work and activity going from our hands to our minds over the last 200 years. Um, it's been, it's had an overall net beneficial effect because it's elevated the way in which we live. Technology has helped communities around the world. Uh, the flip side of that is we have completely changed the way in which our environment uh, makes demands on ourselves. And um, we began when, you know, very early on, when during the early parts of the Industrial Revolution, we, we, we started working in offices and we no longer worked physically. Uh, we worked only with our minds. And already back then, physicians across both sides of the pond started waving red flags, saying we're seeing many more of these curious conditions affecting the mind, which used to be called neurasthenia. And if we fast forward, as, as um, brain work or knowledge work has exploded and has evolved and has expanded, we're also getting um, incredible improvements in the way in which we transfer information. And information has now become a commodity. Mm. So information is now the product. Okay. And as soon as information becomes the product, it becomes important for us to be sold on it. And so we have this way in which we're constantly given information we know we don't require, we don't ask for. Information has traditionally been used to resolve uncertainty, but now it's increasing uncertainty because you're only getting snippets of information and we want more. So we are now becoming the consumers of information. And I'm not the first one, obviously, to talk about it. People are talking about it everywhere. And as a result, information is being made incredibly salient. And that salience factor is what you refer to as the dopamine relationship, where we are engaging with it because we need to find out, we need to complete the gap in information. We need to find out what's next. The problem is that our minds and our brains have almost a limited processing bandwidth. So if we are filling up our, our minds and brains with unnecessary information that we don't need, but we simply fall victim to, um, even if that information is positive or good news or a random piece of positive gossip, it's irrelevant to us. However, the brain processes it because it comes with a little prize. And that is taking up mental workspace. As a result, we are less able to do the things that we would usually do with that sort of mental workspace, such as focus, such as um, think deeply about problems, such as analyze information in a, in a deeper way, in a more nuanced way. And we're losing, actually, the, the tendency, the, the ability to do that. We are 
hearing people say they're less likely to read a novel these days or read a, read a book because they get bored by their first or second page. And I know people who cannot read emails which are more than four lines long because they just can't keep their attention. So we're actually changing the framework in which we as human beings operate. Do you think we're actually changing? Are brains changing? So yes, they are changing. They're changing temporarily to adapt with it. So as soon as you change the demands you make on the brain beyond a stress response, the brain is plastic, so it will adapt to what is asked of it. So for instance, if you take, if you take someone who is in the forces, who is out there fighting a battle, so currently in the east of Europe, or you know over the years in Afghanistan and so on, and you look at their brains, if you're a soldier in battle, your brain should not be adapted to solving a chess problem over four hours. Your brain needs to use all its resources efficiently to be instantaneous, to be reactive. Otherwise, you will die, quite simply, okay, in the middle of combat. And so momentarily, or in the very short term, your brain kind of upregulates certain departments and downregulates others. Whereas if you then move to a game of playing chess and you decide to become a professional chess player, your brain at that moment needs to downregulate its reactive emotional reaction areas and upregulate the kind of nuanced, deep thinking, rational, long thinking department. So we change depending on our immediate environment. And there is no doubt that the current environment we are putting ourselves in or we find ourselves in is making temporary changes that will remain unless the environment changes. So they're, wow. they're, they're not permanent per se, so we're not going to pass them on, but we are responding to our environment in a way that changes the way we think, we feel, we respond, and the way we, we interact with other people. I am absolutely thrilled that this week's sponsor is an app that I have been using on a regular basis since I came off my contraceptive pill. Natural Cycles is the only CE certified contraceptive app in Europe. Now I personally love it because my decision to come off the pill is that I didn't want to keep taking hormones. And since it's an app, Natural Cycles is 100% natural, which means it's non-hormonal and has no side effects. It also helps teach you about your own body and unique cycles, which has been really helpful for me to track my periods and my mood. Now, Natural Cycles is for 18 plus and it does not protect against STIs. But if you would love to give it a go, Natural Cycles has given my listeners 20% off your first annual subscription and a free thermometer. All you have to do is use the code livewell at www.naturalcycles.com forward slash livewell. And so this brings me on to a thought then with men and women. Now, is there a stress gap between men and women? Because are our brains different in that sense? And do women cope worse or better with stress? And do men cope better or worse with stress? I'm just thinking of many different things in my mind, such as multitasking, where men say, I'm not very good at multitasking, and women seem to be better at multitasking, or is that just because we've made ourselves better? Is there an actual difference, one, with our physiology, um, and two, and how we respond to stress? Is there a stress gap? So I haven't seen any data differentiating between men and women per se, mm. but there is plenty of data differentiating between individuals. Um, I would guess that our evolution and our hormones, our hormonal basis um, of our physiology, does make certain, certain changes. So for instance, we know that testosterone can change the way in which you react and respond to situations bearing in mind both women and, and men have testosterone. So mm. there are hormonal um, conversations and dialogues going in there which shape things. While there is no clear bridge between men and women when it comes to multitasking, I mean, a, a woman bringing up a young child while dealing with other problems at the same time will argue that they're very good at multitasking, for instance. Um, so I, I don't think there is any data that I've seen differentiating between the gender there, but there is definitely a great deal of diversity. For instance, there are individuals who thrive, and you know this kind of brings us back to our earlier point about individual variability. Mm. 
For some people, you need to have enough stimulation or varieties of stimulation, types of stimulation to get you to the point where you feel good mentally. Mm. And so some people can feel understimulated and need more to get to that sweet spot. And some people, and these very same people, will do very well with multitasking. So if they're doing something at work, which is incredibly boring, if they add on other things, that work will immediately feel more exciting. They will have, they will experience less fatigue from it, and they will be able to do the work better. And there's actually data on this. So for some people, mental fatigue is actually resolved by increasing the burden of work. Wow. For others, however, there is the opposite effect. So if you're already working at a level where you have sufficient stimulation to be at your sweet spot, then multitasking comes and, and, and makes the situation worse. So you start struggling and that increases mental fatigue. So those two interact in that way. And we know that mental fatigue, prolonged mental fatigue contributes to chronic stress if you don't recover from the mental fatigue. So you see in this way how this set point that we all have becomes important and integral to mm. our own stress calculation. And so from your research in stress, and just thinking as we're talking about the difference between men and women here, who do you see or who have you found to cope the best with stress, taking gender out of it? Maybe it's location, geographical, um, I'm trying to think of what else, but are there certain types of people that you found living in certain areas who cope better with stress and who cope less better with stress? Have you got any research on that? Well, yes and no. So so I think that there are several factors to to include in this. So the first factor is um, industrialized societies. Okay, so industrialization of society. So we are living in, globally, we're living in very, very different environments. There's a diversity of environment worldwide. And people who grow up in certain environments learn from their elders and learn from practices and traditions and how to cope with ways of dealing with stress. Um, what we term stress also varies in that context. So for us, um, for, for some individuals, for instance, um, getting emotional, emotionally triggering uh, experiences from peers can be extremely stressful. But in other cultures, that might be so integral to the culture that it's not really for you to stress and people have coping mechanisms. Um, one thing that really comes to mind, which I find very interesting, is, um, and at this moment, the exact tribe and the location have just left my brain, but there is a tribe in South America. I believe it's along the, the, the region of the Amazon. I, I, it might even might even not be, might even be in Bolivia, I cannot remember. But there is a tribe um, which has a very long tradition of initiating their young male members. So as soon as um, little little boys reach, I, I think they're teens or something, in a, in a way that seems incredibly traumatic to any observer from the outside. And that initiation ceremony involves putting, well, they, they go through a ritual of experiencing bites from the most painful ants in the world. And they put their hands in a glove with these ants and they keep their hands in there. Sounds like I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. It, on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is, I'm a celebrity on steroids, honestly. They, and these are young children. They put their hands in there. They keep their hands in there. Their hands become very red. And they faint from the pain. I can't remember the exact process of that ritual. And, and to be clear, I'm not recommending this on anyone at all. But what is interesting anthropologically is that the reason they do it is to confer resilience on these, on these youngsters. When, for when they become adults. 
And anecdotally, because this is almost impossible to, to study, these very same individuals who've all gone through it as adults are incredibly happy, seem incredibly fearless when they have to go into the forest and forage through food and forage for food. And they meet ants, they meet other predators. But this has sort of preconditioned them to it. So I, I talk about this because you talk about what have I come across across the globe. So as you see, ancient cultures and, and, and old traditions have within them various rituals that they have incorporated in order to deal with their local stressors. So, you know, you and I, when we, I don't know, pop to the supermarket, are not going to be subjected or we're not going to meet these ants, we hope. Um, but had we been in that situation, then it's possible that having this environment would kind of create a stress vaccination against the response when meeting them. So, for instance, when these people, when they grow up, they get bitten by these ants, they're not as terrified and their pain tolerance is better. So they say it's impossible to measure. So different cultures have, have evolved to have different mechanisms of coping with their individual stresses. The problem is industrialization has changed our environment so rapidly and almost out of step with our own evolution and adaptation to it that we are encountering things in our lives that other cultures would not deem stressful. And we are introducing new avenues of stress triggers. I mean, in a way, what is what, what are the main stress triggers? They are uncertainty. There are some forms of uncertainty which hide danger, and then there is the danger itself. So the more uncertainty, for instance, that we are cultivating in our environments by perhaps by using technology to do things better, we are almost making our relationship with our environment more uncertain in some ways. That could be a new stress trigger that we have created. It's man-made, but it's unique to our specific geolocation. Wow. So there are many such kind of small um, factors that are very local to the local culture and geography that play into it. Well, I'm just thinking about everyone in January now going, okay, how am I going to work on a solution for this? So people listening to this, what, what tips would you give them for ways to help cope with stress now? So obviously there's resilience seems to be playing a big factor um, and self-awareness are two things that I'm really taking from this conversation on, on how we can help with our stress levels. But taking it back to solutions now I feel in January we're always hit with different fads and different products and marketing things on you know the best way to lose weight the best way to become more motivated the best way to reduce your stress um and I feel you know I'm sure you feel as well there's, there's many fads out there that aren't true so what are some tangible solutions that people might be able to do um to start off the new year on maybe a, a better step forward so to answer this question, you have to ask, what are you trying to achieve? And stress has become a, which is why my next book is not called Stress. <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. Um, stress has become a, an overinflated word where we throw it around and we use it um, as a label and also as a kind of, um, as an anchor, as a pull for people to do different things. Mm. The bottom line is, um, coming back to what we said right at the start, which is that a stress response is a, is a bridge that your brain is creating between where you are and where you want to be. And one of the, one of the effects of it is that physiologically, the way we prepare ourselves for reaction for uh, uncertainty, for coping, is through a very intricate nervous system network called the autonomic nervous system, which most people will be aware of in a slightly reductionist view um, of it being having two arms, fight or flight, or rest and digest. Okay, mm -hmm. so 
those two arms refer to what we call the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, and the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. Now, the bottom line is that this autonomic nervous system, and, and I go into this into quite a lot of detail in my book, my last book, Stress Proof, has a has enormous influence over our entire physiology, including our immune system, um, including metabolism, and of course, including our, our emotions and our mental state. And this autonomic nervous system, as its name suggests, it's autonomous, keeps us the same when our environment is different. And when our environment is different, the autonomic nervous system shifts emphasis. So it's, if you imagine it like a seesaw with two people, one person on each side, one is the sympathetic, one is the parasympathetic. So fight or flight and rest and digest. What happens is whenever we meet an environment that is challenging in some way, uh, specifically challenging, we the, 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 the seesaw tips t on one side, the sympathetic side. And that allows our system to create that bridge and to survive the demands of that particular moment. In the long term, if we're in an environment of high uncertainty or high demands and really high stress, using that word, regardless of what kind of stress that is, our autonomic nervous system, that seesaw, stays, stays skewed most of the time. So, for instance, we might physiologically feel it you know if you're in a state of kind of hyper vigilance all the time um, being in a state of kind of being wired being always alert always on the go that is a state that's in keeping with having a tilted seesaw and when we offer people stress solutions when we say you know do yoga for an hour are you stressed or have this supplement or whatever the solutions are Ultimately, what we are trying to do is balance that seesaw back out. Okay. Now, it's important to know that that seesaw works both ways. And there is a big um, department in neurology that deals with autonomic nervous system disorders where you can also get excessive parasympathetic activation. So that would be akin to having excessive rest and digest function. Okay. And just as an, as an aside, when people get... Um, they 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 work out over intensely and they feel this sense of incredible fatigue following a very very intense workout that they haven't um recovered from that can sometimes create a state of too much parasympathetic domination so we always you know it's very popular to talk about your vagus being really good and increased vagal stimulation and everything else being bad that's a very simplistic way of, of seeing it so in that situation too much vagal stimulation is actually bad so what we're trying to do is make the seesaw straight that is the important thing and if you're around stressors your seesaw is going to have too much sympathetic and too little parasympathetic vagus input at that time. So we're trying to straighten that seesaw. So coming back to your general point, if that is the aim, then anything that rebalances that seesaw is important and is effective. And whatever works for you will be the right solution. So coming from, you know, simplistic, simple things that people will know about. So exercise, not too much and recovery is important um, meditation yoga these are all important things things like caffeine and supplementation but another thing I, I know that we've spoken about as well that we're definitely seeing more of these days is more extreme ways of tackling the autonomic nervous system this is biohacking isn't it biohacking <laughs> and I know that I'm I'm frequently asked of ways in which um immersing yourself in cold baths can be effective and ice water not cold baths but ice baths can be effective and um, there is also the culture of heat exposure and extreme cooling so all of these when they work work by acting on the autonomic nervous system and it's possible that as our environment becomes more and more uncertain and it becomes more and more difficult to maintain this balance People are seeking these more interesting solutions as time goes on. Honestly, I do find it fascinating because I think 
there's many people out there talking a lot about biohacking and we can get a bit confused with actually what's the right thing to do and how often should we be doing it and do we have an access to a sauna every day? Majority of people don't. Um, so how can we create these environments at home? But I did watch a really interesting documentary and I'm going to have to find what it is. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it was this a woman, I can't think of where, where it was filmed, somewhere, um, I'm just trying to think what this was. She basically swam underneath ice blocks every day and she was trying to set the world record for the longest time of swimming in cold water and I think I can't remember how long she did but it was absolutely extraordinary watching this documentary and her mental resilience of how she had to build this up throughout the year and her training program um, and it is one of those interesting concepts that is really coming to mind a lot of people I now know are going to the lakes in Hampstead where you can go and swim in the morning and in, in the cold water there um, well I say cold cold in the winter at least um, having ice ice baths having ice cold showers in the morning um, how often should we be doing this how often should we be doing this to actually initiate a, a reduced stress response because I can't imagine just doing it once or twice is going to be effective so I guess it's more also about creating a habit in these rituals that is maybe the effective solution so the important thing is, again, taking a, a, a bird's eye view, first of all. Mm. So with all of these things, nothing should be prescriptive. Mm. Um, you need to find, so first of all, if you are going for anything extreme, please check in with your doctor, check your heart, check the status of your cardiovascular system, because as we know, they can increase the risk of heart attacks and various things. So after that, <laughs> that is um, really important. It's a very say. important. It's a very very important fact, and um, there are there is record of these having adverse reactions. The more oh. extreme whatever you do is, the more likely you are to experience its risks. So the, so you know goes without saying, but really that the point is, I think understanding that your autonomic nervous system is what you're trying to target is, is, is the first step. And these days there are some very, um, very effective ways of monitoring your health on that basis. So for instance, tech today has, has come such a long way that HRV is something almost everyone knows about, your heart rate variability. What people don't know about is you need to measure it in a certain way. And there are certain protocols that are very important so just because we can measure it doesn't mean we can just measure it how we feel without understanding it properly and it gives us the right picture so understanding how to measure your autonomic nervous system is important doing it with the right tools is important once you have that level once you have that set up so you have some insight into what you're doing then um, go by your own parameters mm -hmm. so with 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 all of these extreme things, you need to first tread carefully, tread gently, use feedback, see how you're feeling, check your biomarkers, and then go into it deeper. I mean, when we talk about um, biohacking, which is a very interesting word, but really, you know, Darwin did it. Charles Darwin did it, as I told you, and they've been doing it in various cultures for a very long time. Um, I came across... Um, Darwin's story in some archived letters a few months ago and it just fascinated me that you know he came off he cl clearly told us really what we're talking about um he, he he you know we know about evolution because of him so everything we've spoken about today is to do with him but curiously after coming back from his travels he was riddled with some ailments that his physicians couldn't solve and of course, medications those days were very different to what we have now. But nonetheless, his physicians couldn't solve them. And he went to Europe. He went, I think it was Austria, Switzerland, or Germany, or all three, I can't remember. Or he heard about it anyway. Um, but he, he, he went to a particular spring in the north of England that two doctors had set up, having been influenced by the cultures of Europe, so in Germany, Switzerland, uh, Austria, and so on, where there's a culture of heat and cold water alternation to use of that to improve health. And so there was a, set, a center set up in Morvern in the 19th century that Darwin visited. And at the time, many doctors were criticizing it, calling it quackery, 
But he went to it and he felt so much better that he set up a cold shower in his own home as a result. So these are practices, this kind of extreme exposures and extreme challenges to the autonomic nervous system are things that have actually been practiced for a while. Mm. Um, in Japan, for instance, the onsen tradition, the tradition of having very hot baths on a regular basis is integral to the culture there. And there are papers that correlate it with better mental well-being and stress resilience. But these are all done very carefully and gently. So um, biohacking is a new term. So if you are doing these things, it's important to really know what you're measuring and to be aware of the pitfalls when you're doing it. I love, I think I may have part Japanese in me. I have a hot bath every night and I swear that makes me feel better. Whereas if you put me in a cold shower, I just squints and I squirm and I scream and it makes me feel, I I feel worse coming out of a cold shower. I'm probably one of the very small people that it doesn't agree with, but put me into a hot, hot, hot bath or a hot sauna, I feel fantastic. So it's, I find that really interesting. Well, it's very interesting because um, when you're in heat, so in a sauna or in a very hot bath, your sympathetic activity actually increases. But it's when you cool down that your parasympathetic, so your, your seesaw tilts, you know, massively to one side, so say the left, tilts to the left. But when you come out of the hot bath and you have a cold shower or you just cool down, but impressively, you have a surge in parasympathetic activity. And that almost acts like a rebound. So if your seesaw was tilted a little bit to the left, then in theory, it's possible that when you come out, you have such a rebound pull on the, on the right, or rebound push on the right, that your seesaw now ends up straighter than it was to begin with. Wow. So in some ways, it's possible that that's how heat followed by cooling and you need the extreme heat in order to get the extreme cooling effect and you know tying onto this something that people have puzzled about a little while for a little while is that with yoga for instance when you're stretching muscles when you're actually doing a stretching yoga pose you're actually increasing sympathetic activity so you're shifting the seesaw towards the left, away from the so-called vagal effect. So you're actually making it anti-vagal, okay? But it's when you release that stretch that you get a rebound vagal calming effect, which then resets you. And we're only discovering this data by measurements such as HRV and so on, which we couldn't measure before. So wow. it's really interesting. Honestly, it really does show, though, how important it is to listen to your body about what works, because... Some people might be listening to this and thinking a hot bath is the last thing I would desire. And some people might be thinking that about cold water therapy. So just hearing that analogy really does hone back. We always hone back on this podcast is listen to your body and listen to actually what works for you. Um, so me too, that was fascinating. And I have to sadly wrap up. But the last question that I always leave with is me too, what does live well, be well mean to you? A healthy autonomic nervous system. <laughs> I think that was the quickest answer we've ever had. I love that. I didn't even need to think, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the quickest and shortest answer. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And for anyone who is following this podcast and wants to know more about you, we'll put this on the show notes, but could you please direct them to your book, your website, your Instagram, your Twitter, wherever you're most active. Thank you. Um, so I am on Twitter at Mitu Steroni, and that's probably where I'm most active. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, but I'm not too active there, but hopefully I will become more active at some point. And I'm also on LinkedIn, so, so connect with me anyway at all. And my website is um, mitusteroni.com. And I'm going to plug this because you're not going to. And I think it's really important. Your book is coming out in 2024 called Hyper Efficient. And it's going to be your second book following your first, which was Stress Brief. So we will have to get you back on to talk about that when you can um, speak about that more openly. Because it's going to be really interesting to find out all about the information overload that we're currently experiencing. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming here today to tell everyone about the most important factor that is, affects us all, which is stress. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please can I ask one huge favor, if you could subscribe, share and rate this podcast, it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us. It will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.